And welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Diane Tai. Diane Tai is a professor in the Department of Folklore, Memorial University. Most of her research over the last 25 years has explored intersections of folklore and gender, and with Pauline Greenhill, she is co-editor of Undisciplined Women and Unsettling Assumptions. For the last decade, her work has included examinations of foodways in Atlantic Canada. She is author of the book, Baking as Biography, A Life Story in Recipes, that tells the story of her mother's life through her recipe collection, as well as articles that explore a range of foodway topics from the food we eat on storm days, to the significance of making family recipes, and the cultural meanings of regionally iconic foods and dishes such as molasses, bread, bologna, and jigs dinner. Diane Tai, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to have you here. And I'm always delighted to talk about food. Yeah, food's always good. It's it's one of those things that, uh, you know, when I'm doing workshops on intangible cultural heritage and I want to start to get people thinking about how their own personal lives, you know, reflect culture, food is the way that I start conversations sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody eats and and uh, and food is so meaningful eh? on so many different levels. And I think it's something that uh, we we just eat unselfconsciously, and then sometimes when we stop and and really do reflect, there's so many different deep connections that come uh, to us in tastes and smells and those familiar dishes. Yeah, it's just packed with meaning. Yeah. And, uh, so, how did you develop an academic interest in food waste? Well, you know, it really it came out of uh, a personal uh, experience, I guess, and just the same way that you're you're talking. Um, it happened when um, I became. A mother and my son was, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a, a preschooler, and um, and I started to find that I was going into the kitchen on Saturday morning and and making chocolate chip cookies and things for him, and and it was all very kind of odd in a way because I was clearly reproducing what my mother had uh, had done for me, and not to say that I didn't enjoy the chocolate chip cookies or that he, did he, but. For some reason, you know, it seemed to make sense that I would sort of do this nurturing through sugar and all these things that, you know, I knew wasn't very healthy. Yeah. And uh, so it was, uh, that was sort of a puzzle to me as to, you know, how, how this kind of just became almost second nature and why was I doing that? And then I started to think a lot about my mother. And I remembered her making, um, baking a lot. She she made a lot of meals. She was a minister's wife, and in those days, in the fifties and sixties, and into the seventies, um, really the church got two uh, employees when they hired a minister, and the minister's wife came along for free. But she was really expected to do a lot of of food, so uh, production. So mom did a lot of things around the the house, but she also did a ton of stuff making things for churches and fundraisers and and community work she was involved in. And so as I was starting to reproduce all her recipes, I would often think, and she had died quite a few years earlier, I I started to think a lot about her and her life and how these recipes were so much a a part of of her life. And I started to think about the meanings, both personal and and cultural, that you just have referred to and and how they were all there. And then one day a, a very clear kind of memory came through, and it was of her, uh, me sitting at a, at the dining room table watching her bake one day, and she was making, as she usually did, all kinds of different things all at one time and in, and in quite a flurry of activity. And after it all, it was all laid out on the counter, and she had biscuits and pies and cookies and everything. She said, you know, I really don't like to bake very much. <laughs> and 
And so I think that's what really actually launched. It's a long answer to a short question, but that's what launched me because then I started to think, well, how could that be? And what did baking mean and, and cooking mean for women of that generation and communities? And then I started to think even more broadly um, just about what were the cultural meanings in some of the food that she was producing and the ingredients she was using. And, and so it went on on from there. So tell me about the book then. How, so th- that was that? That's the book in a sense. The, yeah. yeah. So then I started to think about just um, what the role of those chocolate chip cookies and other things that she made for us uh, in the, the family was. What did good food mean? You know, how could how could sugar and white sugar and white flour and all of that uh, constitute you know, nurturing and something that was good food. And uh, and then I also thought about the really important contribution that women like uh, my mother made and so many women um, made in communities. They kept churches going, they kept communities going. And the work that they did, of course, was all really volunteer and unpaid, and it was an extension of their domestic role. And so I thought a, um, a lot about that. And then I also um, thought a little bit about how um, some of those women, like my mother, uh, the only time she ever stopped working, day or night, was to sit down maybe and have a cup of tea. And so how did sometimes, um, or after a church meeting, maybe they would bring uh, a lunch and extend their meeting so that they could have a social time. So I thought a little bit about about how women ha- over time have used um, baking and cooking and food as resistance. And then... Uh, Finally, I was just thinking about how nobody in the family, except for me, once in a while, maybe will make these recipes now, and how they really are about a time period, and and um, you know, and and how they live on in the memory of our family, but uh, are are really about that time period. So that's sort of a, a synopsis of the sorts of things that I was exploring and where I went in the book. But it was uh, it was really an interesting thing to think through your own family to to those larger kind of cultural issues and, and as you say all through food which we can mm-hmm. we can do so were your mother's recipes the, the recipes that she was using at that time <clears throat> were they were they recipes that she had uh, gathered herself from a community of people or was or were there ones that had been inherited from a previous generation were there your grandmother's generation recipes involved in that as well very few came from um, my uh, an earlier generation hmm. and um, when I talked to some of my mother's uh, friends and, and other people of that generation, I found that that wasn't all that unusual. We tend to think of recipes being passed down for generation upon generation. But our, our needs um, change, context change. And I, I sometimes laugh even now. I'm, you know, in the folklore department, we're always having some sort of potluck or something that I can bring food to. And really, as I look back on those recipes from the 50s and 60s and 70s that I'm describing that have a higher, you know, maybe fat and sugar uh, content that maybe we'd want now or would think ideal. I, I don't very often, if ever, bring those. They don't serve me very well. I have to go to something new. And I think almost every generation does kind of reinvent themselves. So all to say that my mother's recipes, there was a few from um, past generations, but most of them were from friends. Um, and mm-hmm. so, and especially after she became a minister's wife, she'd grown up in a small community, a rural community um, that they would have had, you know, kind of coarse types of uh, food, for instance, molasses cookies or oat cakes. She came from um, a Scot in Pictou County in northern Nova Scotia, which is Scottish descent. Um, but really, when she became a minister's wife, she needed to be able to make kind of more dainty food, more ladylike right. food. Yeah. It needed to be squares with icing. And, you know, they embraced that generation, embraced the grain wafer. And <laughs> so that was the sort of thing that <clears throat> she needed to learn how to make. So she had to learn that from the other church ladies and from her friends. And interestingly, far more recipes in her collection, which consisted of 
really about a 350 like little cards and things like and so uh, it wasn't a huge collection and it was all very simple stuff but the vast majority of it was things that she really that she was sending back to her mother so that her mother could make you know the newest kind of uh, squares with uh, evaporated milk or um, you know some uh, or grain wafers or something that was kind of coming in because it was also the beginning of processed and industrial food being used and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. she was really helping her mother along <clears throat> I wanted to ask you a little bit about about the the actual physical form that her her collection took yeah. so was it on recipe cards is most that- of it there was about 350 recipes on cards um, it, it's one of the things that, that sort of made her an interesting subject to think about and and in some ways I made it made me think that maybe what we could learn from looking at her life might be generalized a little bit to other people's was that she was not like say one of my good friends mothers who loved to bake my mother really as as she said to me she didn't really like to do it it was just something she felt she had to do she was expected to do it she met that expectation and she would often do it really quickly so she could go off shopping or go to her bridge club or or go you know do something that she thought you know or or uh or her paid work as a in her later life as a as a high school secretary was much more rewarding to her. So this was something she just did, you know, uh, very quickly. So she's an interesting person, I think, to look at because her collection is not of masterpieces that she's you know taken from here or there and lovingly put together in a scrapbook. It was um, uh, mostly index cards in those little. It was, she got um, a little tin box, a recipe box for her shower when she got married in 1954, and so most of them were in that. But when she grew that then you know she'd slips of paper and she also had one community cookbook when um, they moved to the second congregation which was a, a, a small town it was Parsburg, Nova Scotia and that's really when her the expectations rose that she should be making nice squares with icing and the grain wafer base and the, this you know the pineapple add-ons and it was a little fancier than what she had grown up with and so they did a fundraising cookbook that that church group her first year there and um, it's very interesting to look through that because you can see her learning to cook learning to bake through that because she's trying each one of them and then she bought a copy and sent it home to my grandmother and she has each of them sort of labeled this is a good cook or try this one this is really good and so yeah she's uh, she's teaching herself you know how to make this proper dainty ladylike food in the yeah. in the 50s we did a we did a project a couple of years ago <clears throat> in partnership with the Archives Association here, where we encourage people to bring in their old family oh, cool, family yeah. cookbooks. And, and we were teaching digitization skills, but we were using cookbooks as kind of the entry into that. And and I'm always fascinated by that process of annotation. You know, you get mm-hmm. these these older books, and they're all full of little notes. So like, this worked, this didn't work. You know, the, I, I find that really an interesting mm-hmm. way that people do kind of mediate culture. They don't just take things. No. They take things and change them. I yeah. think, and, you know, I mean, I would argue that's one of the ways that I was, um, you know, able to tell my mother's life story through her recipes is because we tend to think of recipes as very being very formulaic. But in fact, it's uh, maybe we should think of it more as a kind of a musical composition or something because we have our frame there. But depending on what ingredients you have, you might substitute something or, you know, they might be a little sweet, so you'll try something else or wonder how good it would be if you used honey instead of mm-hmm. molasses. And so we're always tweaking and changing. And um, so there is a little bit more room for flexibility, I think, than you sometimes think. I think we need to almost think of them as a plan or a model, you know. Um, my my partner Kelly has a has a story about her grandmother having a recipe that uh, she guarded uh, very fiercely. And if people would ask for the recipe, she would write it down, but she would leave out one ingredient 
and then it, the next person who asked, we'd write it down and leave out a different ingredient. So no one ever had the exact funny? recipe that Nan had. Yeah, isn't it funny? I I uh, I've heard stories like that. I've never I've never talked to anyone who's actually admitted that they've, that <laughs> they've done that. But I've also talked to people, for instance, and I used the the example of chocolate chip cookies um, early on. But my mother made these chocolate chip cookies that my my brother still, who's you know in his forties now, just you know to die for. And I can remember interviewing our uh, former um, next door neighbor years ago when I was preparing, you know, to write this book. And she said, oh, yeah, your mother could make the most, you know, amazing chocolate chip cookies. And and then she paused and she said, it was really, she just took the recipe off the back of the package. I mean, there, it was nothing, <laughs> but but somehow she had a light hand or she, yeah. um, and it's it's really funny how she was, and, and, and Helen then said, you know, she could make them and, and in a way that nobody else could. So sometimes it's just maybe even, I don't know, the way they make it or something. But it is funny, eh? That, yeah, my, uh, my brother has a funny story about being, a, my brother's a, a teacher, and he being at a new school, and in the, in the lunchroom, the teachers were all talking about, you know, whatever, and the topic of pumpkin pies came mm-hmm. up. And my brother was bragging about how his mother made the best pumpkin pie, and so all the other teachers were suitably impressed. And they said, oh, well, you'll have to bring in your mother's recipe. And so my brother goes home and phones my mom and says, what's the recipe? And she says, well, I get a, I go to the store and I buy a can of pumpkin pie mix and I read the... It's on the label. <laughs> it's on the label, right? Yeah. yeah. And that was her, you know, but for my brother, I think, you know, because it was kind of invested with those kind of yeah. nostalgic memories, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's uh, deep connotations, deep meanings, I think, in a lot of these, especially if that's an annual taste for him and, and uh, you know, associated pumpkin pie, we often what will have that at Thanksgiving or Christmas yeah. or special meals where families get together. And so very soon it becomes, and, and just like a lot of things like customs or a lot of other forms of folklore, eh, that mm-hmm. uh, we become quite ethnocentric sometimes about this is the way pumpkin pie is supposed to taste and you can you know have somebody else's and they have a little more cinnamon or you know it's more ginger or something and and we'll be saying oh that's not you know it's pretty good but it's it's not really the way it's supposed to be done yeah yeah we had a i i've just returned from labrador and we we i was at the uh Nunatsiavut heritage forum and just at one point someone was having a, a chat about panitsiak which is uh, which is essentially a touton you know okay. it's kind of the yeah. Uh, the the North Labrador coast version of a Towton. But then but people then got into a great debate about what was a Panitsiak and what was a Towton and what was a flummy and what was a flapjack and what was a dumpling and what was a doughboy. Yeah. Like they, it's all flour and water essentially yeah. with yeah. various other little things, you know, maybe some yeast, maybe some lard. And mm-hmm. they were talking about different, you know, the, there was a type of Panitsiak that had a different word. Um, in Nuktatut for when it was uh, fried in seal fat, and apparently that was the best kind oh. of uh, best kind of tauten. But but people get very particular about oh, don't regional cuisine. Yeah. yeah, just or even regional, and this re- that reminds me of um, you know all the while I was growing up and and going to uh, you know around hanging around church kitchens and. And listening to women at historical societies, older women talk who are bringing a lunch or whatever, you know, biscuits were a great debate. Whether you put an egg in your biscuits or whether you made them, you know, how you made them, use cream of tartar or, you know, baking powder. And there are all these different versions. And, and of course, then they're uh, different again now that I find when I come to uh, to Newfoundland, you know, the use of canned milk is, is common. And in fact, just on CBC Radio, I think a couple of weeks ago, they were having a debate about what was a scone and what was a tea bun and what was a biscuit. Right. and. Yeah. So, yeah, there can be all these very deeply felt, you know, sorts of, uh, 
you know, yeah. you know divisions. I, I know that a lot of your work has focused on kind of the role of gender in relation to food. I just wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about that and, and maybe some of the work that you've done around that topic. Well, um, I mean, I guess my what we've been talking about really is an example of that, isn't it? Because... Um, you know, like my mother, so many women did, um, you know, the kind of, did food work. They, it was their responsibility to, um, to prepare meals and uh, to make things people liked and all of those sorts of things. And it didn't matter if they were good at it. It didn't matter if, like my mother, they liked it or not. Uh, certainly for earlier generations, it was just part of doing femininity. It was part of being a woman and, and being a successful one. You know, you did it well. And uh, so I think that's the that's the link. You can start to see all kinds of things. You know, in the Newfoundland context, one of the examples I think of that as bread is that by the time there's all kinds of uh, of um, of examples in in the folklore archive, and uh, and I've talked to people who've told me that you know they had to stand on a box or stand on a chair in order to make bread the first time. So young girls were. Uh, introduced to bread making really early on and it was expected that you know that you were to know how to to make bread and make good bread Mm -hmm. and that's another thing like your you know your brother and the pumpkin pie people uh, will talk about their mom's bread or their grandmother's bread as being the very best and uh, you know I remember sometimes pressing a a student to say well would you be able to tell it from any other and well I think I could (laughs) but uh, yeah so I mean I think that uh, it's just very deeply that whole idea of food work especially for an earlier generation is very closely connected to uh, and you know and then uh you know, to what women women did to gendered roles. But then, of course, it's also, as we started off earlier by saying, it's so deeply connected to our sense of family and place. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a natural connection. And so are things shifting then in the relationship between food and gender uh, in the way of, like, who prepares what? Yeah, and, uh, well, I mean, um, probably the, the scholarship is, you know, it takes a while to get things published and then, the, you know, to carry out a study and then publish on it. I mean, they're still saying that women do most of the uh, work in terms of meal preparation on ordinary weeknights for a family. Uh, men are doing more, they're being involved, but it's more likely on a weekend barbecuing or on a you know uh, a weekend for to make breakfast or something I'm sure that's changing really quickly mm-hmm. but um, you know I mean that's what they're still sort of showing but um, but we are seeing the breakdown in in that area I think just as we are in so many other areas right yeah I wanted to talk to you about where some of this work has taken you. And I want to talk maybe first, I, I know that last summer you were in Harlow with a, right. with a course yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. So for people who aren't maybe familiar with the Harlow program, can you give me a, in a nutshell what, what the Harlow experience is yeah. for students? Well, um, most people probably know that Memorial has a, a small campus on uh, in Harlow, which is just outside of, of London. And often there'll be programs that will be put on by Memorial University, um, either in St. John's or at the Grenville campus. And students will sometimes do some work here and then go over and do field trips um, on, in Harlow and be based there. Or sometimes they'll go for a whole semester and do all of their coursework there. But all of the courses that are offered there have a component that, um, you know, makes sense for them to be there. So there are theater courses that are offered and, uh, and landscape and architecture courses, cultural landscape and architecture courses that have been offered in our department and geography. The one that I was involved with was called Consuming Cultures, and it was one that I uh, co-taught with Charlie Mather in in geography. So the students took four, up to four courses that looked at 
aspects of uh, everything from food systems to and uh, kind of innovative um, urban agricultural and that sort of thing in London. And then mine was more the cultural meanings. So we looked a little bit at tourism and, uh, you know, sort of things like that. Um, I'm trying to think of some other. We did some f- food tours and um, so where did yeah. you where did you go? Where did you take the students? On the um, food tours? Yeah, well, I mean, we went to a few museums. We went to we did we did a couple of food tours because now, in terms of culinary tourism, those food tours are um, are big. Um, we went to a couple of really interesting spots that, in terms of urban um, agriculture and what they're doing in London, using you know spaces in really interesting ways. We looked at markets and we did a lot on on markets because, of course, they're ancient and cities like London formed around them originally, and you know they've evolved in all the these different sorts of ways. One of the things in looking at some of the, some of the cultural meanings around food that I was um, doing with them was to think a little bit about this foodie movement. Mm-hmm. And so we we did a foodie kind of tour and we went a few places. And, uh, and then we looked at how uh, food is used in museums to do the same sorts of things that we've been talking about today, make connections with people and use as a, an entry point into thinking about aspects of the past. And um, we went to, um, you know, um, an allotment, uh, um, and again, kind of an urban garden. And right. so, yeah, so we did, we just did a whole variety of things that uh, combined uh, together really nicely. And uh, we went to, uh, we had, did a day on hop picking, which was very oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. Went around some in, in uh, Kent, went around and looked at old hops farms and, you know, the remains of where hops workers would have lived and talked to some elderly people who were young and you know hop yeah. pickers as kids and, yeah. and more recently you, you've you've just returned fairly recently from from a trip to china yeah. for a conference there so tell me about that how did you get invited to uh, that was really yeah that was really interesting well i'm um i'm a member of the executive board of the american folklore society right now and uh for the past maybe four or five years maybe more i don't know i've been uh co-editor of digest which is the online journal for the foodway section of the american folklore society so i've been quite involved with their um, their their group of folklorists there who are interested in working in food ways. Um, so the China Folklore Society uh, invited three people to come from the American Folklore Society. So the other co-editor of Digest and the executive director of the American Folklore Society, uh, Tim Lloyd, um, and I uh, all went for a very quick, just a three-day um, meeting and tour um, in I think it was in April. It was no, maybe March, um, but not too not too long ago. And um, we went to the eastern part of China, that is an area that is quite well known for its um, seafood and um, lake fresh uh, dishes. And they have all of these sort of regional specialties that are based on bamboo shoots and different types of fish and all kinds of of things. And uh, as well, this is quite a rich cultural area that for comb making and paper uh, cutting and um, tea ceremonies, different things that different cultural things going on there as well. So this was the beginning, I think, of forming a committee to move towards maybe um, designating some of these, in fact, maybe the whole area as one for intangible cultural heritage uh, as, a, as a designated mm-hmm. um, um, area. What's the, as what a, am as I? A domain. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, 
So that for we started off with uh, with these ceremonies and, and the signing and the creating of the committee and and so on. But this is the first, I think, step towards this designation because China, I think, is quite. You would active. know more yeah. about this than I do, but I I think they've been quite um, committed to maybe almost having more. <laughs> yeah, I think they uh, they were one of the first countries to ratify the convention, and they've and they've nominated many things to the to the yeah. representative list. Yeah. And it's interesting that food is food is one of these things that keeps coming up in nominations. It's something that uh, it's the state parties, various state parties, really see as important. Um, South Korea nominated uh, kimchi oh, as, yeah. as to the to the World Heritage List, and and there's a, a great kind of multi-state nomination around uh, the Mediterranean diet. Yes, I'd heard, you know? I remember so, reading about that. So yeah. food is one of these things mm. that does come up time and time again, and it, so it's no surprise that the Chinese are interested in. Yeah, they had several different uh, dishes, and I mean, it was a, it was a lovely thing to be part of because then we went around and tasted many of these dishes, <laughs> and you know, the finer points eluded me, but they they were really they were lovely, and uh, you know, lovely meals, lovely banquets, and 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 uh, and wonderful you know dishes but it was clear too that they were seeing at the potential for tourism um, yes. to be there as well so um, maybe it'll be a direction that uh, more of us will follow really yeah you know? yeah and you, I mean you mentioned this earlier but food tourism is certainly something that is growing mm-hmm. in, in popularity and we, we see it here in Newfoundland that we see now that uh, somehow in the last couple of years St. John's has become a, a culinary destination mm-hmm. it never was yeah how yeah, yeah. some of us would have yeah <laughs> would have guessed surprised that yeah we wouldn't have anticipated that necessarily you know we had to uh, yeah we all had our favorite spots and favorite foods but much of it was made at home wasn't yeah. it and and those spots were uh, yeah ones that uh, and that, I think what we're seeing now with a lot of within the St. John's food movement food movement is that some of those kind of home style dishes are now being elevated yes. a, a little bit. Yeah. 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 Do you see I, that happening? Yeah, there? I think that's a trend worldwide. Yeah, I, yeah certainly. I know we were noticing in London for sure last year and I was reading about it elsewhere. It's some yeah, it's people are taking these yes, these homey things. And some of them, I mean, you know, I'm I would say f- in Atlanta, Canada, and I'm yes, I say I'm from Nova Scotia originally, but you know, much of what we eat has a is very, you know, Oh, how to put it, working class or, you know, mm-hmm. it's, um, I, I don't want to call it, I'm just trying to think of terms like peasant food, but, you know, it's very, it's very basic, right? Yeah. And so now it's being reinterpreted in slightly, you know, in different ways, those ingredients and some of those tastes. And Is, you know. there, is there a Nova Scotian food from your childhood that kind of means Nova Scotia to you or means home? Uh, there would be probably several that I could think of in my family. Family, not and, and those probably would be different than um, provincially. Yep. Um, for I just made rhubarb uh, sauce and rhubarb pie the other day, which I'm sure you know many people in in Newfoundland made as well. But for me, that's the taste of spring. Springs here as soon as I have that first taste of rhubarb and chow in the fall. And so, in, in some ways, there's lots of parallels with uh, with Newfoundland. Um, but I would say read, uh, and again, this is, would be another regional, I, I guess, um, similarity. But something like lobster would be more identified, I think, um, you know, in terms of the province. Yeah. Um, so, you know, people come to PEI or they come to Nova Scotia, and I'm sure they come to Newfoundland if you're from uh, traveling from far away and you have to have a lobster before you leave, right? Yeah, that would yeah. be one of the foods for sure. I was just at the Canadian Museums Association conference in Halifax. And mm-hmm. so, of course, all the people who were coming from across Canada had to go for mm-hmm. their lobster dinner. And for me, lobster dinner isn't uh, isn't that exciting, yeah. you know? It, 
but uh, but for the people who are certainly coming from Saskatchewan mm-hmm. and whatever, you know, that they they love that idea of having that, you know, kind of down east uh, yeah. experience. Yeah. Yeah. So we have uh, we're coming close to the end of our show. Uh, just before we before we finish up, though, uh, what's next? What are you what are you working on in terms of uh, of your own research, your own work on on food and food waste? Um, I'm continuing to think about uh, uh, food in in St. John's, mm-hmm. um, and I just did some interviews uh, a couple of weeks ago, thinking a little bit about newcomers and to the to the city, to the province, and how they use food to integrate, maybe and uh, and to express um, you know who they are and uh and you know sort of how they open a conversation about uh about the changing uh you know nature of of the population in uh, in St. John's and in Newfoundland so I think that might be I have a paper in the fall that will will look at that so that promises to be interesting and if people are looking for a copy of Baking as Biography where can they find that um a certain well Amazon or Indigo any of the you know online probably at this point it's been out a couple of years but I'm we'll, not sure if we'll there's any. track it down and we'll yeah, put a link Broken on the Books blog. has some I think broken so books yeah here in St. yeah, yeah so it's it's around okay great thank Thanks you very, very much, much. I'm Dale Jarvis you've been listening to Living Heritage a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. You can leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ICH underscore NL. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 